We hope you can still go to a Yankee game. Yeah, can we, let's do it. We have a do-over on that one. I did say Yankee Stadium, right? Yeah. The greatest fight I have is the right to change my mind. That's right. <laughs> Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the head coach of the New York Knicks and 2021 NBA Coach of the Year, Tom Thibodeau. Coach Tibbs is here today to discuss what he learned from other great leaders during his year off, the balance of flow versus sets in half-court offense, and we talk adjusted plus-minus, offensive rebounding, and iconic baseball stadiums during the always fun start, sub, or sit. Listeners of the Slapping Glass podcast can now receive 10% off a Slapping Glass Plus membership by entering the code SG10 at sign up. This gives complete access to SGTV, the Sunday morning newsletter, the private coaches corner community, and more. Visit slappingglass.com and enter SG10 to claim the discount today. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Tom Thibodeau. Coach Ford, dive in. Congratulations on a great season and the NBA Coach of the Year Award. Obviously, well earned. So, exciting time for you and the Knicks. Thank you. Thank you. We're very fortunate to have a great group of people to be working with. And I have a great staff, and our players were incredible all year long. Absolutely. Well, Coach, we want to dive in on something that I know I think has helped you a lot, and that was your year off that you had before coming back to become the head coach of the New York Knicks. And wanted to start there about you know places you went, coaches you studied, and the things that you learned and took away from that year experience. Yeah, and I think that's something that you know I've done throughout my career in terms of every off season. You try to take a look at the season that just transpired and analyze the, the things that you felt your team did well, you did well, things you didn't do as well as you would have liked. And you also want to generate new ideas over the course of this off season. And so being out for a year, year plus, you have a lot more time. So you can dig into things a lot more deeply and you get a, an opportunity to visit with a number of different people. And it's not just coaches in the NBA, but it could be college coaches, coaches from different sports, leaders from different industries, just to get new ideas. And then at the end of the summer, you look at all the things that you looked at, and then you try to decide what you want to incorporate into the things that you believe that you do well or the things that may fit the team that you're going to. And so along with that, because you, you don't have a set schedule, you also have a chance to recharge and you know do things that normally you can't do during the season whenever your schedule is set. So I try to take advantage of it as best I could. I visited with a number of different people, organizations, had an opportunity to spend time with friends, family, vacation, that's so you recharge also. And I thought that was important for me. But of course you don't know where you're going to end up. And so you know you're looking at a lot of different things. So I try to spread it out with you know teams that were you know, with playoff type teams, teams that were sort of in the middle and teams that were, you know, rebuilding and trying to move up. And oftentimes the things that you're picking up, it's either a confirmation of something that you already are doing, or you saw something that you might add to what you're already doing, or it's a 
completely better way to do something. The important thing is to, you know, go into it with an open mind and try to learn as much as you can. And that's what I did. And, you know, and I think you always want to continue to grow. I don't think you ever want to stop learning. And then there's always different ways to do things. And you have your core beliefs of what you believe goes into winning. But oftentimes, style of play can change. You know, we saw the 90s were a different style, the early 2000s, a different style. And then to where we are today, some of it is a byproduct of the rule changes, the skill that's been brought into the game. You know, you go back and you look at the 80s, the 80s were high scoring and a lot of read and react type offense. And if you went way back and you really studied the Princeton offense, you would see that the Princeton offense actually came from the pros. With Van Bredikoff, he had gotten it from Red Orbeck and Red Holtzman. And so, and then it completely went around to when Pete Carrill went to Sacramento with Rick Adelman and they incorporated the corner series. It was basically a modification of the Princeton offense. And so things go in cycles, but you're always trying to adapt. And then the most important thing is the players change in terms of you know, how you connect with them and technology factors into it. So you're trying to take a look at all those things. Coach, when you talked about cycles and things coming back, what were some things in the, the year in between that you saw potentially starting to make their way back to the NBA that you were looking to maybe incorporate? Well, I think, you know, the, the big thing, the rule changes created a big advantage for the offense. And then I think what we saw in the 90s is you had, really uh, oftentimes power forwards playing a small forward, a big physical power forward in the center. So you didn't have nearly the shooting or skill on the floor. It became real slow and physical. And then the rule changes, what that did is it now you saw a paradigm shift. You saw that small forwards were now playing the power forward position to the point where we are today, where usually it's a point guard and three wings and your center putting pressure on the rim. So the floor is a lot more spread and obviously you can't touch a player and they wanted to open up freedom of movement and that sort of thing. So you saw that. And then the other thing is the versatility and the skill set of the bigs. So you can invert your offense, but that's not something that's really new. If you went back, you know, studied Doug Moe's teams when his bigs were always skilled. It was one of the things that I felt with Sacramento with Rick Adelman and Pete Carrill and, you know, they, they had uh, Divac and Weber and guys who can play away from the basket that could shoot and pass and put it on the floor, you know, it opened up the game. And then, you know, I thought that Mike D'Antoni downsized and he spread the floor, you know, and put a lot of pressure on your defense. So those things all factored into it. But I think when you look at it is really to analyze, you know, the same principles, you got to get your defense set, get back, get set, keep the ball out of the paint. Most alignments are cons. You want to look at what the action is. You know, is it a high pick and roll created for a single side tag. What is the back end of it? You know, there's oftentimes false action initially, and then it becomes something. But we're seeing a lot more read and react, drive and kick. But it comes back to your individual fundamentals in terms of how you guard the ball, keeping the ball in front, keeping it out of the paint. We always say the ball, the paint, react out, cover the line, finish your defense. It's all tied together. Coach, in your year off, when you were attending these practices, what were you looking for? What were you watching during the practices? Was it drills? Was it how the players interacted, how the coaches interacted? What was your eye following? It's all of the above. You know, when you think about coaching, it's, it's leadership, it's teaching, it's communication. There's all these buzzwords that are out there. You know, everyone is saying culture, culture, culture. What is culture? And to me, culture is not any one particular thing. It's how you do everything. 
whether it's, uh, you know, how you conduct your pre-practice, how you practice, your post-practice, your film session, your weight room, your sports science people, it's your early pre-practice coaches meeting, whatever it is, it's how you do all of those things. And I think one of the biggest challenges in today's NBA is how much the staffs have grown. When I first got into the league, it was basically the head coach and two assistants. Some teams had three. And now you have your head coach, you have really a, a plethora of assistant coaches, player development guys, strength and conditioning guys, interns, sports science people, you know, athletic trainers, PTs. So it's a large group now. So I think communication, you're doing a lot more managing. And you want to make sure the same message is being delivered to your players. So you don't want anything to get lost in translation. And then you have to also understand how the players are comfortable receiving that information. So you're probably using more technology than you were. Those are some of the challenges and seeing when you factor in analytics along with it, there's so much information coming. And then I think you have to decide on what are the things that you feel are most important for you and your program to also make it so it's clear and concise for your players and so they're not overwhelmed with information. With the staff size being so large, has it helped or hurt the game? I mean, in a sense, do you think if they went the smaller staff size, would it make, like you said, declutter everything, make your job easier, make the communication to your staff and the players more direct? Well, I think it's good. Like in terms of like the preparation that goes into every game now, it's great because when you combine it with analytics and technology, the big thing is to not allow it to overwhelm you and, you know, and it paralyze you in, in terms of all the information that you have. So to answer the question, I think it's good, I, but I do think your communication, your leadership, I think strong leadership gives you order. So what you got to be careful of, if you don't have order, it can become chaotic. Yeah. You could have multiple people telling somebody different things, you know, so you got to make sure that the message is clear. And I think that that's, you want a healthy environment where you, everyone has input and you can debate things. And then, but once a decision's made, everyone has to get on the same page and deliver the same message. Coach, you mentioned that you spoke to people in other industries and other sports, and I'm wondering about any of the crossover learnings that you took from other sports or other industries that you've taken back now to the NBA. You can learn from watching, like whether it's, you know, watching games on TV or, you know, reading about things and visiting with people. And so I had an opportunity to spend some time with Tony LaRussa, who I think is terrific. We spent a day with Bill Belichick, who I think is unbelievable. I spent time talking to Pat Riley in Miami. But just the, you know, philosophically, like what wins in each sport is basically the same. And the first step is you eliminate all the ways that you beat yourself and then the heavy emphasis on starting at a zero base and starting with your individual fundamentals and building up into your team fundamentals and then you go step by step you don't skip over anything to understand like i think when you begin you begin with the end in mind knowing okay what does it take to be successful at the end and you want to keep improving and keep the focus on improvement throughout the course of the season so that you are playing your best at the end of the year if I could kind of drill down on that point a little bit more, I mean, with someone like yourself that I know is very detail-oriented, how do you eventually drill down onto what are the most important things to then transfer to your guys so that they're light on their feet and they can you know, still play without being as bogged down with all the information that you could have? Yeah, I think your first meeting at the beginning of the year is so critical because you're laying out the plan. It's your most important meeting of the year. So you're laying out your offensive philosophy, defensive philosophy, 
practice philosophy. And this is how we're going to go about what we're trying to get done this year. And here are our goals. And this is how we want to practice. This is how we want to play. So then as the season goes on, you could always go back to those things, your core beliefs. This is who we are. This is our attitude and approach. This is how we're going to do things. This is after each game. This is how we're going to reflect on why we either have won or why we have lost. And again, the big thing is, you know, you, you want to learn from each situation. So we always say we, we either win or we learn. Every game is we want to move it forward. And I think before you go on to your next game, I think everyone has to have a clear understanding of what transpired in, in that previous game. You know, you mentioned that the first thing is getting rid of ways like to beat yourself. I know it's kind of been sprinkled in throughout the conversation so far, but what are maybe some of the other ways that coaches need to be aware of that are basically working against yourself? That's the whole thing. It's, you know, the degree of how smart, the degree of how together and the degree of how hard you play. But I think in basketball, you look at it, it's your turnovers, it's your fouls, and it's your shot selection. You know, so I think to understand, okay, if we're low turnover, or we're low fouling, regardless of how we shoot, we're going to always be in position to win. We always say defend, rebound, low turnover. That puts you in position to win. Then offensively, inside out, share the ball. So we want the ball to hit the paint, force a collapse, force a shift, and then make the play. So whether it's drive, pass, pass, get to the free throw line, finish in the restrictor, whatever it is, create high percentage shots. And to define what a good shot is, those things are important. You look at all the sports and really it's the same. Like, you know, in baseball, it's walks and errors and, you know, football fumbles, interceptions and penalties. And so, like, I think having everyone understand that and then to analyze, okay, why are you turning the ball over? And usually your turnovers are a byproduct of too much one-on-one or risky passes. There's certain guys that you're probably going to give more rope to in terms of your point guard is going to have the ball in his hands and he's got vision and you don't want to take that away from him. But I think, you know, your spacing and making good decisions is a big part of winning and also understanding when to shoot and when to pass. That's a nice flow into more of a tactical conversation we love to have with you, which is, you know, as you've moved through your career, your thoughts on the balance of, you know, kind of flow in an offense and just running an offense and flowing through it versus calling and running sets. Has that changed at all in any portion of your career? Yeah, and I think it has for most coaches, and sometimes it's out of necessity. When I was in Chicago, obviously, when Derek got injured, we had a shift, and we had a number of point guards who came in and did a great job for us. DJ Augustine, Nate Robinson, CJ Watson, John Lucas, and they were all guys who could shoot and run pick and roll, but we had the versatility of Joaquin Noah at center. So we knew we had to shift the way we were playing, So I think that you want to look at who your players are and what are their strengths and weaknesses and what advantages can you get from them. And so we ran our offense through Joe Keen and we did the same thing this year where I felt that was one of the strengths of our club with Julius because of the way he could handle the ball, lead the break, and also make plays. Like His vision was terrific. And I think it's different. I think those breaks, the ones in which they rebound and bust out, they're very difficult to stop. And they create advantages. And so we wanted to try to take advantage of that before defense could get set. And then, of course, with the value of shots and understanding, you're trying to get your layups, you're trying to get to a free throw line, and you're trying to get the wide open three. And I think the best way to get that is in transition before the defense is set. Coach, off of that point that you made with playing with through Noah and this year through Randall, and I think, you know, coaches, they prefer the sets because they can dictate, they can control, they can get 
their best player, the ball in certain spots. But when you're flowing, I guess, how do you still get the ball to your best player in spots? Yeah. And I think it's important, like the player who's leading, you know, whether with Joe Keem and and Julius is to also understand the flow of the game and the advantages you may have. And by getting the ball up the floor quickly, you want them to read the floor when they hit half court. Okay. What's it look like? What advantages? Is there a numerical advantage? Is there a guy with a hot hand? Is there a mismatch they're trying to hide on someone? So you may catch a small, the smalls are back protecting the basket on a big wing. So how do you get the ball to them? And then, you know, there's things that you do where you can get the guy, you know, a quick hit right out of transition, whether it's a quick pitch to the wing and the guy lane cuts to the post, there's things that you can get to right out of transition. So you want to play and you have to practice it. So you get comfortable doing it, all your options to get to mismatches, to get to a hot hand and to oftentimes just create an advantage. If, if you can get the ball up the floor quickly, if there's one guy that's slow getting back, you're going to have advantage somewhere. Oftentimes, you see it's the weak side three in transition. It's a great rhythm shot, and it's a high percentage play. Coach, is there any difference for you as far as with the flow of the offense, if your best player or your your best offensive player is a forward, say a Julius Randle type, as opposed to if it's a guard, a one or a two, and sort of the ways that you enter the offense and kind of look at how to build around it? And that's a great question. I think then that's an important thing to ask as a coaching staff before you get started is to analyze what the strengths and weaknesses of your club are and to look at, okay, how can we take advantage of Julius's strengths? How can we take advantage of RJ's strengths? Uh, You want to play to your strengths and cover up your weaknesses. So I think that the important thing is I've had a a number of different players, whether it be a point guard position or a Jimmy Butler or Carl Anthony Towns. And so what you're trying to do is to analyze what they do well And some of the things that are hard to guard, I think, you know, when you look at things defensively and you look at players that were similar, you look at the actions that are are being run and you say, you know, that action would be good for us because it takes advantage of this guy's strength. So and you want to have different ways to get to the same spots. If they take this away, we have this other thing that we can go to or there's a, you know, whether it's an action, whether it's a read and react type of thing, but you want to get your players to the right spots on the floor. Coach, I want to follow up with just maybe it's a bit of a tangent, but just how much your view of working in kind of old school post play into, you know, more of a modern five out elbow action, um, how much that plays a role into building into your offense? Well, I think, you know, and you're seeing it in the playoffs and it's a great question because it's also part of your planning. You know, what's working in the playoffs? What do you need in the playoffs? And so it's still the principles of sound offense. You want to force the defense to collapse and shift. So whether it's off dribble penetration, pass and cut in a five-out type offense or the post-up, it's still going to create the type of shots that are high-valued shots. And so if you have a dominant post player that can force a double team, anytime you can get two onto the ball, that helps you create the shots that you value most. I think that should be a part of your offense. And you're going to have five-out, you're going to have your quick hitters in transition, but I think you also have to be prepared once you get to the playoffs, it's a different game, right? And you have to have a balance. You have to be strong in your half-court offense. You have to be strong in transition. You have to be obviously strong defensively and rebounding. It all matters. And so I do think the post-up, we're starting to see more of it now in the playoffs, but I think it's high percentage. The ball in the paint is a huge factor. 
Coach, with that post up, obviously you have someone who will draw two on the ball. Are you looking more to space and play off of how the defense reacts or will you throw it in and kind of have like an automatic? What do you prefer when you throw into the post? I like post depth, you know, so that's the first thing. Like if we can catch it with two feet in the paint, we're looking to score before the defense can get the second defender can come. We feel like the less dribbles, the better. So if you catch it deep in transition, two feet in the paint, everyone holds. If you catch it outside the paint, then we want to start our cutting game. And the thing is, is I think the movement off the ball is critical. You know, so whether it's, you know, your baseline cuts on your post feeds, your slot cut from the weak side, but the movement just to make sure that you're keeping everyone occupied. And then when the second defender comes to make sure everyone's reading the ball. And so we call it a wheel action where when the guy starts to go and the second defender goes into his help. We're going to replace all the way in front. Everyone's going to rotate up a slot. In the, but we're also going to get that weak side slot cut. Coach, kind of going back, we've been talking a little bit about flow and, and actions like that. I want to ask a little bit about sets and set design. When you're working to put in a set for whoever it's going to be, what's the process like with you and your staff as far as what actually to run? Is it conversations with the player, what they like? Is it analytics of seeing where they shoot from a certain spot? Is it... Just something you like an action you saw somewhere? I mean, what goes into the design? And the answer is all of the above. Okay. <laughs> no, your preparation is vital, like in your off season, to really deep dive into who your player is. So usually there's a history. So whether it's, you know, what he did in the previous year, you know, on the team or for somebody else, the things that you felt were hard to guard when you coached against them, things he may have done in college, and then your conversations with him, what he liked. And I think that's all part of it. And then you, you're looking at how it fits into your system. And usually you can come up with some pretty good things, input from staff, the analytics people telling you, you're going to have a feel for what you think is best. And then the numbers are either going to confirm it or they're going to make you think differently about it. And I guess my quick follow-up then, you know, course of a, a normal 82-game season, what and how do you decide when to cut something or change something or tweak something on the flip side after you put it in? Again, that's a great question. It's just like whatever it is you're doing schematically, the first question you ask yourself, is it being executed properly? The second question is, you know, are we doing it hard enough? And oftentimes you will be doing it that way. You're executing it properly and doing it hard enough and it's just not working. And see, to me, that's when you change. But if the answer to those two questions is that, you know, we're not executing it properly, you've got to fix it first to really determine whether you should change it. Otherwise, you're going to be changing on every play. If a guy misses a shot and you get nowhere like that, everyone has to understand what your thought process is. This is how we're going to go about it. Coach, how do you teach sets in regards to, obviously, over the course of the season, teams will figure it out. So they're going to start blowing up actions. So how do you get the guys all to be able to react accordingly, or when you do get it to a spot, you know, playing out of the set, you know, reacting off of the advantage you've created. To me, offensive sets are timing and spacing. So in repetition is important. And so you're always working on that. And I think over time, because you're also thinking about, okay, in the end, if you're playing someone in a seven game series, you also have to have the counters off of the action. So if we see that we're being defended this way, this is the counter. And I think over time, your players get a good feel for that. And you can break it down into three-man groups. You can break it down into an early group before practice. You work out it in practice. And you also have the benefit of 
knowing you know how the each team defends the action so in your shoot arounds you can you can cover okay they're going to do this so we should look for that but you're always tweaking looking at it and oftentimes the ability for players to recognize during the course of a game to think on their feet read and react and okay if they take this away we're looking for this you know and it's got to be instinctive in knowing that in the end that's what's important in the playoffs You, you have to have the ability to think on your feet and make good reads. Do you do anything with five on zero and maybe encouraging like, hey, let's break the set. Let's maybe not get to the finish it, break it, so we learn to space and react. So I think you have to have a comfort level with playing off the play. Yeah. And so once the double team occurs, that's it's spacing, it's timing, spacing. Really, all offense is the alignment, whatever it is, is a con. You're trying to create false action and use deception to put the defense at a disadvantage. And once you, if there may be a kick out or a drive, and we call them rim reads, make your decision, you know, at the rim, whether the second defender's there or the help is there to spray it out. And then what do you do from there? Oftentimes we're drive pass pass. And so you don't know what the, once the penetration occurs, the offense is off and it's driving kick. And so you got to read and react off of that. And so I think that is important. And I think you can work on it. And the, one of the things that I really like, and, we're fortunate here. We have a, a great video room and they're really player development guys. So we have five former Division One players. One guy's a, an ex-NBA player, but they're terrific. And so they provide defense, they provide offense, whatever we need. And that's one of the benefits, I think, of having a larger staff is that you can use the people that are working for you in that way. And they're good enough players and they're still young enough where they can get on the floor. And now that your players are reading a defense. And so I think that is important. Coach, my last question here on this for you is just has to do with defining guys' roles within the flow or sets and with having younger guys that are you're trying to develop certain skill sets. How do you balance, you know, defining a role for them to be successful with also giving them a little bit of freedom to kind of grow as a player within a flow of an offense? You know, we had two rookies this year that were terrific. They were gym rats. They wanted to learn, great workers. And the first step is learning how to be a pro, how to practice like a pro, and to have the emphasis on having great practices. If you practice well, you're going to improve. And also to understand that you're not going to be perfect. You're going to make some mistakes. And a big part of learning is trial and error. So just don't repeat the same mistakes over and over. Learn from them. And so your communication and defining what your expectations are. But I think having developing a good understanding of when to shoot and when to pass is so important, such a big part of winning. And they have to understand what a good shot is. You know, So yeah. I think that's important. Coach, we want to move now into a fun segment called Start, Sub, or Sit. We'll give you three different topics, mostly all basketball here. We'll ask you to you know, start one, to sub one, and then to sit one. If you're ready, we're going to start with kind of a non-basketball one for you. And so this is um, a fan right in here. No, you're a big baseball fan and you've been in some major cities with great baseball teams. So we're going to ask you to start, sub, or sit these three iconic baseball stadiums, your preference of a game you'd like to see at one of these stadiums. So Wrigley Field, Fenway Park, or Yankee Stadium, start, sub, or sit. See, I'd start Fenway Park. Okay. Sub. Think Wrigley. Okay. Oh, coach. Okay. <laughs> okay, coach. I don't know if this is here the way you are. <laughs> then I'd sit Yankee Stadium. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that probably not, is not not great. But 
I'm actually, I'm actually a White Sox fan because of Tony La Russa, So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, going back to Fenway, I mean, what is it about you personally that love Fenway? Well, I'd say like the irony is I grew up in Connecticut. And so you're split, either you're a Red Sox fan or a Yankee fan. And it, oftentimes, as it was in my case with my own family, half are Red Sox fans and half are Yankee fans. So I grew up being a Red Sox fan. Okay. Many of my cousins are Yankee fans. So it was a lot of fun growing up. And obviously, uh, and I was here in the 90s with all their great teams. And you're right. It's an iconic franchise, incredible stadium. It's a special place. But it's, you know, having grown up a Red Sox fan, I maintain that allegiance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Coach, you mentioned Tony La Russa. Maybe circling back to our first conversation real quickly about learning from other people. I mean, what is it about La Russa that you've taken, you know, back with what you do? He's fascinating. He's like a lifelong learner. You know, he studies all sports. Very, very intelligent guy. He's had incredible success. He's a great, great leader, but he has great humility. And so I got to know him when I was in Chicago and uh, Jerry Reinstorf introduced us and we maintained a very close relationship ever since we met, but I just love the way he studies winning in all sports. He's one of those guys, every time you talk to him, you learn something. And I was also fortunate with Team USA to be around Coach K and Jerry Colangelo and both of those guys. And the thing that I loved about him, get out in, you know, Jim Beheim and of course, Monty Williams. But the thing that I admired about Coach K, Tony La Russa, Jerry Colangelo is that they're very, very accomplished and they're still hungry to get better and they're driven. And so like the passion that they have where they are in life just says so much about them and you can't help but learn when you're around them. They've been through, you know, all kinds of things. They've adapted to many different things and you can see just to be that great over that long of a period of time. To me, that's truly what great is. It's doing it over a long period of time like they've done. So I've learned a ton from all of those guys. I've been very fortunate to be around them. All right, Coach. Our next start sub-sit. This is a question in terms of undertaught big man skills. So teaching the DHO or teaching the handoff, offensive rebound techniques, or passing out of the post? Okay, I'd probably say the offensive rebounding. I think it's creeping back in now. I think people are sending more people to the board. They're getting, we're seeing the corner crash through the elbow. I think that that's become more common. We went through a stretch where teams were sending everyone back to get the defense set, but I think we're starting to see that more now. Yeah, passing out of the post probably next. I think particularly like with young players, I think that there's a tendency to fight the double team instead of getting rid of it quick where you have the advantage. You know, so, and make, having everyone understand, you know, you're exerting a lot of energy fighting pressure with pressure. So we can get great offense off of this. You know, sometimes you can beat a team with the pass. And so understanding, I think, and that comes oftentimes with experience. I think when you see some of the uh, more experienced players, they're baiting you into the double team to create that, you know, high percentage play where you swing, swing and you created the long closed out, either you're getting the open three or dribble penetration and the second shot. So that's probably second. 
And then what was the third one? The dribble handoffs. I'm assuming that's a sit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I like the dribble handoff, uh, you know, and I think that you can, and again, it, it's a different way of, you know, like putting pressure on people and we're seeing a lot of different things with inverted handoffs. And I think you can create really good offense off of that. And it's also a way, like if you don't have a skilled big to get to that action where if they're sagging off them to create open shots for your best shooters, you know, I think yeah. there's a lot of different things that you can do off of that. And it keeps it moving too. It's a good counter, I think, against teams that are trying to keep the ball on one side of the floor. My first follow-up there is, why do you think offensive rebounding is coming back? I think that, you know, like when you really analyze where you get your threes from, and obviously the transition is a big part. I think the dribble penetration, you know, in the rim read and the spray out is another one. And now I think people are really emphasizing the, the kick out off of the offensive rebound. I think looking at it, from an analytical standpoint, there's a thought process that it's another way to get threes and take advantage. And you may have guys, someone that's really good at it. You know, when we were in Boston in, in 08, we had Kevin Garnett was more in the high post area, the top of the key. And, you know, that was probably his best area on the floor. It was when he shot from that area, even though it was frowned upon by some because analytics, but that was, it was like a layup for him. You know, if he got that shot, you knew it was in. And Rondo oftentimes was down on the baseline and he was really good at going to the offensive board and also creating havoc from behind on defense rebounds, going and getting steals. And it also allowed us to pick up full court. So Kevin, they basically, we inverted the defensive transition. Kevin would get back mm -hmm. and Rondo would go up. And so if the strengths of your club are saying that, that's one thought process, but also that corner crash, I think what we see a lot is when the ball's shot, there's a tendency from the corners for guys just to, they turn, they stand, and they stare versus turn and check. And that's a free run to the rim, you know, through the elbow. And some guys are great at it. It's led to easy scores and, and kick out threes. So it's another way to get an easy bucket. In terms of maybe the teaching, the technique, is there anything you emphasize or, you know, is it more of an innate thing? This guy's just a great offensive rebounder. Like with Rondo, are you giving him any tips or is it just, he's just, he has a knack for it. I think it's instinctive, but I think the thought process of running through that elbow, like if you can get the guy to lose vision and, you know, there's a lot of guys, you know, especially in the NBA, they're not blocking out. Yeah. You know, so if you have a run to the rim, it's something you, you can take advantage of. Yeah. And the way to me, it's because of the volume of threes that are being taken where the offensive rebounds are going are a little bit longer. You know, they're oftentimes in that elbow area. So you see it all the time where, you know, guys are getting that long rebound and it's a quick kick out. And, it, you know, either it's the three there or the quick swing off the kick out. And that's, you know, you almost feel like that's an automatic. One quick question, Coach, about the post-passing. And I was just curious, when do you teach them to pass out of the double? So if they're coming to double and you said, you know, a lot of guys will try to fight the double, when are you teaching them to pass is it as the double's coming, when the double's there? Yeah, and I think it depends upon like who you have in there. But I think anytime that second defender comes, we want you to make plays. Don't fight it. You know, we like to replace all the way over in front. And so it's an easy outlet. And what it also does, it gives us a crack at reposting you, mm -hmm. right? And so if we can get two onto the ball, that means we have an advantage somewhere. And if we move the ball quickly, 
we should get a very high percentage shot off that and also puts us in great position to offensive rebound and also to get back and get set with our defense. I think guys to, you know, are trying to split the double team, you know, like I'd say the for the first three quarters, I want you to just make sure we're getting everyone involved. The fourth quarter, if you feel it's not a strong double team and you're a primary scorer and you feel you have an advantage, probably more role in that area there. And I think the same thing, like it doesn't matter whether it's a post double team or the blitz or the pick and roll, the same thing. I don't want you fighting, trying to split the pick and roll all game long. If they're putting two on you, get the ball out. We always say it's the second pass against the double team. You know, so it's not the first pass, it's the second pass. And there's no way you're going to be able to rotate. If we're moving the ball quickly, we're going to get a high percentage play. All right, coach. My next start sub sit for you. We've been talking about your analytics department and how good they are. This is going to be a question about what analytics matter to you the most. So start sub sit. These are going to be individual player analytics stats. So adjusted plus minus player efficiency rating or PPP or points per possession. I'm not a big fan of the adjusted plus minus. Okay. I'd sit that one. The player efficiency rating would probably be second. Points per possession, I'm very high on. So I'd say points per possession. Why do you like that one so much? Because it, I think it reflects actually what you're doing, you know, like on the floor. You know, I get that daily, like after every game. So I know roughly like where we are, where our opponents are. And I think it's pretty accurate. You know, like for one game, maybe not, but over more of a period of time, it reflects actually what Don. It's the same thing with like plus minus. I actually like more the what when a player's on the floor, what's happened. And then when he's off the floor, what's happened. And I get that both for every game that we play in and for the season. And, and the same thing with that. It's like for one game, it's not going to tell me everything I want. But over 20 games, it's going to tell me something. And PER, I guess I, I sort of like it because it reflects. It's a compilation of things combined into one that gives you a standard measurement for everyone in the league. But I don't know how you're determining the value for each category. You may value, like someone may value one area more than another. Does it reflect, you know, like a player playing to his strengths and covering up his weaknesses, which is also a big part of winning. Yeah. But I do look at it. And then I'm interested then in, you know, whatever the stat that you like most or that you get, then sort of the process for you, now taking that information and then having conversations with your players about how they can improve or what you're looking at or what you expect out of them based off of what you're getting from the analytics. Yeah. So like you have, you know, your pregame reports come in. And so the coaches, we're going to have a lot more information and then we're going to pare it down where it's, there's a few key points that we're going to emphasize to the players. And then we also get a postgame package analyzing everything that transpired in the game. And then when we go to film, and we always go to film before practice, right after the game, the first thing, you know, like, okay, this is what happened. And we try to put them like, you use the term buckets. So buckets, so they could reflect, okay, defensively, did we meet what the things we were trying to get done? Offensively, did we meet? And we'll break it down, like, you know, how many times the ball hit the paint, you know, what our efficiency was. You know, one of the things, you know, and, and again, like we're not where we want to be in terms of three-point attempts, but we thought we made major strides in that area. What was a big concern was our shooting. And I think we went from 27 to three in terms of three-point 
field goal percentage. And we're up to 30, which is still not enough. You know, the league average is around 35, but we've made a jump in that area. We got to continue to work on that. We measure all those things, how many free throws we're getting each game defensively. You know, like how many times did we get three stops in a row? How many times we allow the ball into the paint? Just different things so they can see there's, okay, this is concrete. This is why we won. Mm -hmm. This is why we lost. Or it also, I think it helps emphasize like what you're going to work on that day in practice. So like we fell short in our pick and roll defense in this situation. So then we'll show them film. Here's, you know, a couple examples of us doing it right. Here's, you know, an example of us not doing it right. This is what we're going to work on today. Obviously, you know, you can't work on everything every day. So like you might shore up that pick and roll defense and then next game it's your defensive transition. But I think it helps deliver the message to your team. If you do it after every game, they have a clear understanding of why you have either won or lost. And then these are the things we're trying to work on. Coach, on that same thread, when you go into a halftime, what are the most important stats you're looking at? I always look at field goal percentage, three-point percentage, free throws, and rebounding and turnovers. Those are the things. And then the secondary, like, you know, yeah. points in the paint, fast play points, second chance points. We also put it on the board for the players so that they know exactly, you know, if we're yeah. short in an area, I want them to see it. And then, you know, of course, we have the video clips at halftime as well. With the three-point field goal percentage, is it your field goal percentage or your opponent's field goal percentage? Both. 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 Mm-hmm. Like, it's such a big part of our game. We always have, you know, how many attempts we have, they have, how many made we have, they have. And then the percentage. Okay. And coach, do you care about the number of three-point attempts, uh, trying to limit the number, or is it just the percentage that you're worried about? Oh, all of <laughs> the above. <laughs> so, you know, like, and we drive home, we always say the ball, the paint, react out, cover the line, finish your defense. So we want to challenge shots. You know, like the thing is, is like the way things are being called right now, the way you're closing out, is whether it's hard closeout. Most teams now, are, when they shot fake, they you know they skid along the curb. They're not going in for a mid-range shot. They're yeah. just coming back into the play to challenge the shot. You know, working on that technique of the pivot, come back, challenge with the hand closest to the ball. Like, those are the things that we want to be good at. And so, okay. the, and the best way you know is to obviously try to limit the amount of threes that are being taken. So you might tie that into your switching if you feel like. You know, it fits your team. You have your switching partners that are automatic, like whether it's two, three, four, or it might be one through four situations, one through five, short clock, or, you know, like there's penetration and it's a read and it's a veer back. Those are things that you you want to work on in practice. Our last one, coach, I want to give you a scenario that you're tied and there's 20 seconds left and you're going to be on defense. Now, maybe take you out of the NBA because the team will be taking it out full court. So you're going to be on defense 20 seconds and you're tied in terms of maybe some riskier defense or some defenses you would run start sub sit trapping in the backcourt, trying to get a trap in the backcourt or trapping in the front court, maybe sending a double or last one, a junk defense triangle and two box and one, maybe a zone press, something you haven't been running at all. I like the idea of the junk defense, but I don't, I don't think I would, you know, uh, uh, in short clock situations, side out of bounds, we see that more in the NBA. I like it in those situations, you know, but I want to rely on my defense more. I know like internationally, it's different. Yeah. There's more of, you know, you're trying to get the ball back, right? Yeah. To, but I would rely more on, on our set defense out of the full court, believing that 
we can get get a stop. What was the second one? Trapping in the back court, maybe like a run and jump, or trapping yeah. in the front court and doubling or trapping a pick and roll. Uh, the second one would be I, I do like the idea of trapping the pick and roll, and the third one would be trapping in the back court. Coach, just real quick on the the sideline out of bounds, especially in the NBA with so many coaches having number of sets and whatnot. How do you prepare for what you might face on a night to night basis on a sideline out of bounds, say late game situation? Do you just stick to your general concepts, or do you try to have the sets scouted or mixture of the two? You have everything that they've run their last five games, and okay, just about every situation, and it's drawn already drawn up, you know. So you and you've already prepared for you know, what they might do. And so I think that's all part of your preparation. And, you know, every game you're going to have like a late game tape of what your opponent does. And so I think that helps with your preparation. In those timeouts, when it's high stress, does anything change from when it's the first quarter to now it's five seconds left, how you approach the players and communicate with them in that huddle? Yeah, I think it, you know, it's, and it's different because, you're going to communicate first, but I also like the idea of the team coming together to remind each other to, as they're breaking the huddle, there's one more and then they get to it. And, you know, I think that that, especially like one play short clock situation, you want to make sure that everyone's clear on what we're doing. You know, like you want to tell them and tell them and tell them again. And, you know, it's funny, like when you watch, you know, the playoff games, you know, it's easy. And that's why, like challenging your team, not only physically, but mentally every day, because knowing that, you know, there's a lot of decisions that are made in the course of a game and, you know, no one's going to be perfect. Mistakes are going to happen and you want to minimize those. And oftentimes a mental mistake can be the difference between moving on and going home. You want to work on that every day. You want you're challenging your team physically, but you're challenging them mentally too. So you know that these situations, you want to prepare for everything. Well, coach, you're off the um, start sub sit hot That's seat. So thank you. To- <laughs> <laughs> um, we hope you can still go to a Yankee game. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can we let's do it? We have a do over yeah, yeah, on that one. That I yeah. didn't say Yankee Stadium, right? <laughs> right, right. We, we started started. That's my new starter. The greatest fight I have is the right to change my mind. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, coach, we'll. Uh- <laughs> We'll get you out of here on this last question. And uh, before we do, we really appreciate the time this morning. Thank you for that. Well, thank you. You guys are doing a great job. Keep up the great work. Thank you. To close here, you were just named NBA Coach of the Year, and rightfully so, after a great season. But you've also had situations in the past where you were let go from jobs. What is it that you've learned from those experiences being let go that you've now taken with you and have helped you in New York? That's sort of the nature of life is going to be ups and downs. And I think being mentally tough when you face adversity and turn it into a positive. So if something doesn't work out, whatever your circumstances are, make the best of those circumstances. And I learned from, you know, I I love going to watch other people practice. I I started doing, that's how I met Jeff Van Gundy. I was, I was an assistant coach at Harvard. I was going to uh, watch Rick Pitino's practices, and Jeff was one of the assistants. And, you know, he'd always be kind enough to share his ideas and thoughts with me. And so, and I learned more that way. And so I love going to watch different people practice. And you never want to stay the same. And so 
you know, take advantage of your free time and you don't have a set schedule. So there's a lot of benefits to that. And then how can you improve? Just like you would ask anyone to improve. Yeah, I think you always want to adapt, get better and see what changes are coming. And oftentimes you get ideas of what might be coming next too. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure to check out slappingglass.com and enter the code SG10 to receive a 10% discount on a Plus membership. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass.